Welcome back to the third and final part of our series on workplace violence in the emergency department. This section will be looking at the things we can try to do to minimise violence in the ED. And we will be covering a new initiative that has recently been rolled out in Westmead Emergency, the Code Black. We will have Amanda, one of our ED advanced trainees, presenting the paper, Exploring Staff Experiences, a case for redesigning the response to aggression and violence in the emergency department, which was published in the International Emergency Nursing Journal in 2021, and actually features Margaret Murphy, one of our clinical nurse consultants here with us today, um, who was one of the authors for this paper. So I'll hand it over to Amanda. Thanks, Caroline. So as you've touched on, it's quite lucky that we've got Margaret here today. Um, This paper was based in our local health district all of the data really that they've got has been pulled from our demographic, our local health district. So it's quite pertinent to us specifically. Like we've sort of already touched on, I think it's quite obvious and quite widely recognised that EDs are a very, very high risk environment when it comes to violence towards healthcare workers, but also towards patients. This paper mainly focuses on the violence that is directed towards us as the healthcare professionals, but I guess it's important to identify that it's a reciprocal thing. So Patients can direct their aggression towards us, but then there are other bystanders within the department who cop that same aggression. So patients in the next bed space or family members that are sort of witnessing this horrible situation unfurl in front of them. Just in the fact that it's a very sort of, you know, busy, chaotic, messy environment. We've got a large turnover of patients and things like that. And then things that we've lightly touched on and we'll probably touch on a bit more on is the fact that all of this is compounded by the access block and the understaffing, the under-resourcing that we've got, which, you know, in an ideal situation, we wouldn't have all those things and we'd have nice smooth movement of patients, we'd have appropriate care of patients, and that would diffuse a lot of these potentially quite volatile situations that we often find ourselves in. And these guys in this paper basically conducted what I would say is sort of an observational study and they've interviewed a lot of the healthcare staff members that are actually working within our facility to gauge their experiences and to then use that as a platform to then helping redesign the code black policies that sort of evident within our LHD specifically. The paper itself identified two research questions. First one was, what are the experiences and practices of staff currently working in EDs in responding to code black events? And then the second question was, how might these experiences and practices inform the redesign of Code Black interventions and training for ED staff, which Margaret will touch on with discussion about her projects and things that she's going on with. I'm just going to refer back to the ASIM guidelines sort of throughout the discussion here, because I think it's interesting to see what the expectation is for our EDs and what our expectation is, like what our environment should be and whether that's translated across to our particular environment. So In the ASIM guidelines, which the last ones that I could find, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they were available sort of the end of 2017, early 2018 period, they've sort of used the World Health Organization definition of violence as the basis of their policies. So it's basically said that violence is defined as the intentional use of physical power or force, threatened or actual against oneself, another person, or against a group or community that either results in or has high likelihood in resulting in injury, death, psychological harm, or maldevelopment or deprivation. So I think that kind of nicely, broadly covers, you know, both physical, psychological, emotional harm committed towards another person or to oneself. 
And they've generally sort of um, labeled a code black as denoting a hospital-wide coordinated clinical and internal security response to a serious threat to personal safety. Now, I think it's quite evident from what we've all talked about that this is a very subjective matter. There's no clear criteria, I guess, for defining what a code black is and when it should be escalated. But that's what ASIM has defined it as. They've also acknowledged, you know, in their policy that, quote unquote, all people have a right to an environment safe from violence and that no staff, patients or accompanying persons suffer harm due to violent incidents in the ED, which is interesting because I think the environment that we work in inherently contradicts that. We can do all we can to prevent all of this, but we really aren't going to fix this problem quickly, as it were. So moving back to the study, um, like I said, it was an observational study. They conducted a series of qualitative semi-structured interviews across the district. So within our district, there are four main sites that they um, looked into, one of which is a level six ED, which is Westmead, obviously. It's the third busiest in New South Wales, and it treats, as we mentioned earlier, 75,000 plus patients annually. So quite a high volume of patients. They interviewed 20 staff members across the the site. So they've taken five from each site and they've looked at a mix of physicians, nurses and administration staff. Interviews range from about half an hour to an hour and a half. And then they've gone back and looked through the transcripts and sort of eventually ended up collating data from um, relating to 45 cases of ED violence and the use of the Code Black intervention. The data was analysed by audio recordings and then Margaret and her colleagues have developed codes for each of the interviews in order to sort of capture the concepts in the data of what they were trying to look at and sort of, I guess, kind of quantify what those experiences were and what were the main trigger points and things for escalation of violence in the ED. Obviously, given that it's a small study and there was a small sample size, so only 20 people were interviewed within this study, but I'm sure hundreds of staff members across our district would have an anecdote or 10 that would have been relevant for this study. It also obviously looked at only one local health district, so one demographic, and it might not be as translatable across other LHGs within New South Wales, within Sydney, whatever you want to sort of um, generalise it to. Within the study itself, they didn't really have an even balance of healthcare discipline. So there was only one administration staff member out of the 20 that was interviewed and the rest were majority nursing, but some physicians as well. So moving to the findings of what they've noted in their research, basically they've identified different, I guess, headings or topics or trigger points within their research. So they've identified the types of perpetrators that are mostly involved in these kinds of incidents, which are, again, code blacks. They're not these sort of smaller incidents that we've kind of touched on in the first episode. These are events that have properly been escalated to a a systemic response. So they've identified the perpetrators, the triggers, whether staff were prepared or not, what our ability to assess the situation was or what our de-escalation skills were and how we actually went about managing and activating a code black. So to start with, the majority of patients, as we've, I guess, we all sort of are aware of, the majority of these patients that perpetrate these types of events uh, of the substance abuse sort of group. So the majority of them are drug and alcohol patients followed closely by mental health patients. But then there's a smaller subgroup of people with dementia, people who are delirious or in significant pain, people who are needle phobic or procedure phobic. And then there's a smaller proportion of people, you know, family members, support 
or care personnel, and then a small proportion of people where it was unknown what the exact trigger of the violence was. They identified a lot of things that we have talked about and will talk about, I'm sure, in terms of clinical factors that have affected the violence being perpetrated. So things which are all kind of very, very obvious, I suppose. Extensive wait times, having frustration around those wait times, fear and anxiety of what's going on, not having good communication between patients and staff members with the progress of their presentation, the use of the Mental Health Act and having patients being detained involuntarily for psychiatric care, which is part and parcel of what we do and is a necessary thing of what we need to do. Um, And also, again, not knowing what was happening. So not understanding why things were being done why things are taking so long and communication breakdown. Interestingly, the ASM, the goal is to have a positive patient journey through the ED, which can then improve patient satisfaction, reduce the perception of the long wait times, and then subsequently reduce the incidence of frustration and aggression within the ED. So they have suggested that we have, you know, well-lit environments designed in such a way that there's no hiding spaces, CCTV and security visible. We're sort of setting it up from the get-go that you know, it's not acceptable to escalate in these situations. People are trying to help you in this environment and not as a threat, I guess, but as a sort of a physical, a, a visual prompt that, you know, we are monitoring what's going on in our department. And then clear signage, electronic displays of wait times, which I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I guess we can open that up for discussion later, but letting people know quite clearly that there's going to be a wait, which I guess they can gauge from them being in the waiting room, watching people go in and out. But also things like we were talking about, so distractions, tactile sort of sensory stimuli, like music, art, having a television with some TV programs playing, and then quite importantly, an appropriate assessment space. So like we touched on, so low stimulus environments that are a safe, enclosed space where staff and patients can have a private and dignified conversation about their presentation. So they've identified that the design of the ED is quite a big part of how we can treat these patients and minimize aggression within the ED. But they also identified that a lot of the staff that were interviewed, so six out of the 20 staff that were interviewed, which is 30% of them, so almost a third, they hadn't received formal training preparing them for A, being in the ED, but also with how to respond to these patients. So part of this was, I think they've identified there just being a lack of resources and a high demand for this kind of training to be implemented. But as Margaret sort of touched on, a lot of this is see one, do one, teach one. So we learn on the job how to respond to these kinds of situations when maybe it is a better thing for us to have an arsenal already given to us in the form of teaching to develop the skills rather than just expect to pick them up on the spot. The findings of the study also showed, obviously, that staff preparedness is vital to anticipating the behavioural issues that patients will sort of present to us and that new or junior staff are less likely to recognise a developing situation because they're quite task-focused and task-driven. So they're sitting there thinking, okay, I need to do the OBS, I need to give the medication, I need to make this patient ready for the ward, I need to do X, Y, Z. And that then detracts from their ability to actually sense what's going on with the patient itself because of this sort of the chaotic environment that they're in. The paper also found that, I guess, within the population that was interviewed, staff sort of overwhelmingly felt that good communication was absolutely key to managing an escalating situation and importantly involving the patient in decision-making and care planning, I guess. Um, Talking to them in layman's terms, being quite frank with them about what was going on was uh, viewed by the staff members as being a better form of communication. 
But interestingly, it identified that staff recognize these situations, but then again, are too time pressured to be able to acknowledge or deal with them before they've escalated. So that, I guess, really highlights the fact that we are severely understaffed, under-resourced to be able to act on these situations that we can see bubbling, we can see getting worse and worse and worse, but we're we just don't have the time or energy to devote to them until they've escalated. The last sort of little thing I'll touch on is that they've obviously observed us acting in code blacks and how we manage them, how we activate them. One thing that I found quite interesting was that despite us being a department which, you know, there's a code black a day, it's, it's quite well known that Westmead is a bit of a chaotic department and that we have a patient demographic that does escalate quite quickly. The staff that were interviewed, they made the observation that they were unclear as to when to call a code black in the first place, which to me is quite interesting. I guess it is a subjective thing. You know, the degree of violence that one of like someone's expected to tolerate varies between people and the, the impact that it has on the staff member, as we've touched on in the first article, the impact varies between staff members. I guess more senior people are more used to seeing this sort of thing. They're more used to quote unquote, copying the abuse. So they won't necessarily see it as a point of escalation and an opportunity to start de-escalating the patient. Whereas a a more junior staff member might feel more unsafe and therefore escalate things. But it's interesting that they weren't clear as as to when a code black should be called. And then when they were aware of that, they were then reluctant to call the code black because they didn't want to interrupt other busy colleagues and detract from other patient care. Again, interestingly, security staff members perceived to be undecided as to how much support they can or are prepared to offer. So one of the anecdotes that the paper had from one of the interviewees was that they noticed that security just blatantly refused to get involved with patient care. So they stood at the sidelines saying, no, I don't want to get involved. Obviously, I don't know what the, the specific details around that situation was, whether or not it was an appropriate reaction or not. But we would think or we would hope that there would be a defined role for the security staff members in a code black situation because that is what they are there for. They are there to provide safety to staff and patients. And if they're feeling uncomfortable in a situation, how are we supposed to then act on that or deal with that? And then again, after the code black has happened, there's no real culture of formal debriefing. So no real outlet for people to vent or for people to express frustrations. There was no real way to identify, yes, that went well, no, that didn't go well, sort of to improve teamwork and then anticipate further events and prevent them from happening. Um, And then it sort of induced this culture of coping within staff members because there was no real outlet for them to express what they were feeling. They took the stress upon themselves and sort of, you know, did their little informal venting in the tea room, taking a break, going to the bathroom, having a cry, whatever it was, because there was no real formal process put in place. Which also then leads to the fact that code blacks tend to be notoriously underreported, which I think is just really interesting, given that the college has quite a, I mean, I know it's medical, it's not necessarily nursing, but it is quite a defined policy. It identifies all of these issues. We all know these issues are there. We all know that something needs to be done about it. The governing bodies know that these things are a problem, but nothing seems to have happened. I mean, I know that things are slowly changing, but This is probably where the implementation of the code black that Margaret will touch on Mm. comes into play. It's the sequelae of identifying all these issues. As we will and have discussed, it's obviously a very complex issue that can't be fixed with one specific thing. This was the research that led way to the implementation of the code black that we'll talk about. The key theme that came out, as as you said, Amanda, out of that paper is variability. 
just at every level, variability in calling the code black, variability in what security staff do, in what nursing staff do, in what medical staff do, in how everyone responds afterwards, in what the outcome for the patient is. As a result of that, you've got anecdotes where they've quoted saying security were excellent at doing this. They did such a good job of just chatting to the patient and understanding that they don't need to be aggressive and um, you know just helping with the verbal de-escalation side of things. And then there was other situations where security in this instance, and, and the same thing has been said about medical and nursing in the paper. The other instance was, oh, security was completely useless in this situation. I just wonder if we could talk about what ideally should happen, because I think we've all seen that there's individual clinicians who are really good at this, individual security staff who are really good at this, who understand the role of physical threat prevention, but also know that there's so much more that they can bring to these situations. But there's also probably people who just don't know what to do. How should we approach verbal de-escalation? What's the best way to manage that? I think the best way to manage it is by using an empathetic approach and reassuring the patient, validating them, taking the time out to listen to them. It can be really easy to be very reactive. And often I see people, they can get worked up as well, the clinicians, and that doesn't help. But definitely just using a it's a non-threatening approach and a very calm approach. And I feel that the patients, especially in my experience, they actually appreciate you being honest. If you tell them there's going to be an eight hour wait, or I really don't have any beds and I'm not going to have any beds for two days, or I can get you a sandwich, but only this type, or even if it's just the small things, don't offer things that you can't do. Because I think a lot of the time that what makes the patients anxious is not knowing not knowing when they'll be seen, not knowing when they're going to get a bed, not knowing what's wrong. And their families as well. Like I think a lot of the times families get quite agitated with us because they don't know either and they're just as anxious. So be honest about what you can and can't provide and don't make promises that another team will be able to come or maybe just say, I'll check things and I'll see what I can do. But just using an empathetic approach, I think is, is the way to go. And I guess Think about how you would like somebody to tell you bad news or that you're waiting for that long. Yeah, so I guess that's my practical approach to de-escalation. Lex, did you have some thoughts? Yeah, I guess this comes back to like, what is the causes of the behavioural crises? And like we said, it's environmental. Well, look, we could make a better department, but we're stuck with what we've got. Patient factors, we can't change that for now. But the other part is communication. And there was a pilot that tried to look at this in Victoria that was in, I think, oh, it was a huge amount, like 50 psych wards, and then was then rolled out in three EDs to see if a process, which they called safe wards, was going to reduce these sort of events. And it really focused on communication. And, and a lot of it was being proactive and telling patients beforehand what's going on, checking in on them before they escalated. Because once they've escalated, your chance of, a, of de-escalation diminishes rapidly. I think this is relevant because this is the first time I've looked at something and said, look, they've actually looked at what they call code grey, but the same as our code blacks. And they said, by implementing this, they reduced it by 30%. That's the first time I've seen an intervention look at an outcome for behavioural disturbances and actually see a difference. And I'm kind of surprised this hasn't been rolled out in other states, but maybe there's reasons for that. You can read it. It's a 57-page document, but the gist of it was communication and the way we communicate probably needs to change. Be a bit more positive, be patient-centered, be empathetic, try and see what's happening beforehand and try and offer solutions to that in advance. And then you don't find as much 
happens and the chance of a verbal de-escalation working is much higher before they escalate to the point they're tearing the walls down. When someone actually escalates, I think you've really got to have it in your head. What are you going to do? And I never really got any formal training on this, which is a bit weird because you went through the entire emergency medicine training and never really got formal training on this. But And I'm still learning. Basically, you, you see what the problem is. You see what you can do to change that. You try and address their concerns and do your best to sort of address that. Most of the time, if verbally de-escalation is going to work, just talking to them, being empathetic, explaining what's going on and why and offering an apology and saying, yeah, this this really sucks for you. I can't change that. What What is there that I can change about this environment, be it a cup of Clive of India or international roast or a sandwich? You know, that's going to work. Then in my head, if that doesn't work or they seem a bit escalated, yeah, just go through what Code Black process is, you know, you offer some some oral sedation if that if you think they're going to take it. And if not, make sure you're ready to do a takedown if it's going to come to that before it becomes a major issue. Walking in with a plan in your head, what you're going to do, you can fill in the, the detail of how you're going to attempt to de-escalate yourself. But I think that's that's also quite important. What do you guys think about minimizing medication use? Does, does that play a role here? I think the way I now view medication like Valium and that in the department, I think when I was more junior, I was very anxious to prescribe someone Valium. But I think in the same way that we give patients opiates for pain, I think we have to give patients some way of managing the circumstances very much out of their control. And when we talk about the overstimulating hard place that they're waiting to be seen in and all of that, I think the Valium is just like an endone in that it gives some relief from the environment that we can't extricate them from. And that's kind of the way I view it now. Obviously, you don't want to zonk someone out completely, but, you know, some Valium or Olanzapine is really the kind thing to do. It's not going to start an addiction. It's a way of managing this acute situation. It's not an everyday thing. What about when, you know, there is a violent or agitated patient? What are our legal requirements and what's the best approach? Lex, you said that you've been in situations where there's shootings even. What's the right way to do this? I mean, it depends on your risk assessment, but the fact that there's shootings and bullets and people screaming and people bleeding out of various parts of their body with a need to have a definitive intervention, I mean, it's not really much of a decision. The guy gets tied to a bed, gets an RSI and goes off to theatre. So... The decision is easy in that instance. It's just the logistics of making it happen while the department's being evacuated and there's a threat of a bomb outside in a car not 10 feet from you. That That's the aspect that's a little bit more tricky. But I think in those situations, people that do ED, they're very good at doing the right thing when the chips are down. So is that the right way? Yeah, probably. What about um, something not quite so nuclear, something along the lines of the agitated, non-compliant patient who is perhaps at risk to themselves, refusing oral medications and doesn't have the capacity to leave. Let's just say that you've tried to calm them down and, and it's failed. Is it just a simple matter of just go to oil every time? You know, what do you have in your toolkit and what do you find is the most effective thing to do? I might thread Adamina on stages before actual chemical sedation, if that's okay. And then I'll talk about what I would use if the decision's made we need a chemical takedown. Is So when it comes to all patients, particularly psych patients, is that you always want to try the least restrictive option. So it would be great if we could not restrain patients and not chemically sedate them. But, I mean, the reality is there's always going to be a proportion of patients that need to, they need to have that to protect them from serious harm. As long as you've tried everything like verbal de-escalation, offering oral medication, if there's nothing else you can do, unfortunately, you're going to have to do sedation. But I think 
there is a lot of sort of vicarious trauma that's associated for clinicians because we hate to see patients restrained. Um, we don't want to inject them forcibly. It's not what anybody signed up for, but it's kind of part of ED and part of psychiatry. So as long as you've tried everything you possibly can first, if there's no other way, then you have to do it. And what I notice with a lot of my patients, especially if they're psychotic or even drug-induced, after they've had the sedation and they've had a good sleep, a big population of them and a big percentage of them, they end up being more, I guess, mentally stable when they wake up because everybody benefits from a good sleep. So sometimes it's worth doing in the long run. But yeah, if you can avoid it, that would be great. But I think there are some cases where you're not going to be able to avoid it and you need to do it. In terms of the, the chemical takedown, it's communication with your team on who's got which role and then communication with the patient. So they have at least some idea. I mean, it's not going to be a great experience for them, but if they're held down and no one's telling them what's going on, it's probably going to be more traumatic than if you don't tell them what you're going to do before you do it. Because then it seems like you're at least doing patient-centered care if you're, you're telling them what's going to happen. So bottom line, it comes down to one clinician per limb, someone on the head if they're a spitter, have a management plan for if they're going to be a spitter or a biter. Look, I've seen everything from a surgical mask, which generally doesn't last very long, to literally someone putting a pillow slip over someone's head, which I don't advocate. That's probably overkill, but control of any biting or spitting is, so someone for the head is, is, is important. You've got to look at patient factors, you know, how big are they? Are they 300 kilos of pure muscle, in which case maybe you're better off, you know, getting someone from the police to come and help or the riot squad, which has happened before in Westby. And then choosing your drugs to use based on their level of escalation, their body weight, a best guess of what their metabolism is going to be. You know, if they're a known benzo abuser, 10 of medaz is probably not going to touch the sides. And any concurrent medical problems that you're aware of, you know, if they've, if they've got a toxidrome you, and it tends to be amphetamines, well, you might want to get give a bit more of the antidote, which is benzo. If, if they're really, really escalated and you need a really big takedown, well, you can always do what the ambulance officers do and choose ketamine. It's not in the code black, but and it's not done very often. But in terms of what we consider a safe drug, I think ketamine is probably considered to be safer than you know large doses of medaz. So maybe that's the right decision. I mean, it's like, what, what are you going to do for procedural sedation? It, it depends on what your experience is, pharmacokinetics, the patient factors, you've got to think about it. Telling the patient what's going to happen as you're doing it, doing it in a controlled environment as, as you can. So everyone calls out if they've got control of the limb, they're restrained or not, and have a separate clinician to administer the medication and confirm when it's done. And just once it's in, don't, don't think it's going to work straight away. You need to control the situation until they become a bit calmer. And ideally, if the patient has any sense of rationalism left, tell them, we've given you this medication. We want to take the restraints off as soon as we can. When you wake up, things are a bit calmer and you feel a bit more comfortable and you would be willing to have a bit of a tablet or two to help calm you down a bit after you start to wake up if needed. We're more likely to remove the restraints and the patients don't want to be in restraints. So unless they're completely irrational, they're going to do what they can to get out of them. Probably the one thing I would add is watch the airway and breathing. There's certainly been a number of highly unfortunate incidents where patients, particularly in the prone position, have had an arrest because their struggle is so much that their cardiovascular and respiratory <clears throat> demand does not meet supply. And that's why we should um, be doing this in the resource rooms wherever possible. I mean, if they're in a bed, that's a good start. But <laughs> it's a high-risk situation. You're giving someone who's quite escalated a lot of medication to bring them down in a hurry and Look, if you 
inadvertently over-sedate a patient in order to control the situation, they need a tube, well, that's okay. You don't want to go in with that endpoint in mind, but look, if it happens, being in resus and being prepared for it helps. Does a patient need to be physically restrained when they're chemically restrained? I just wonder, like, both from a legal point of view and from a clinical point of view, um, what your thoughts are on that? Uh, you can absolutely give oral sedation without mechanical restraints. So in psychiatric wards, we don't use mechanical restraints at all. We just give sedation and that's it. But in the emergency department, I think you can sedate them even if you were to use IM medication or IV medication without restraints. And the other thing too is you don't have to use four restraints. Could this patient be restrained with only two restraints or one restraint? You should always be trying to do the least restrictive option. And if they are in a four-point restraint, we really should be aiming to get them out of it as soon as possible. I think that's a problem that we do have where patients take too long to come out of four points. But yeah, if you can safely manage the patient with sedation only, then that should be the way to go for sure. Yeah, I don't think that can be stressed enough that New South Wales Health Policy and the Mental Health Act talks about the least restrictive method, which means if they're well sedated and they're still four-point restraint, there's got to be a damn good reason for it because it's not you're not being consistent with policy. And, you know, one arm, one leg, you know, they're not going to run off like that. Yeah, I think once you've got control of the situation, the default position should be removing the restraints. There might be reasons to leave them on. I've, I've had instances where they're a particularly violent patient has a long-standing history of violence towards healthcare workers. We made a decision not to unrestrain that patient from four points. And then in the end, it didn't matter anyway, because they had one arm, one leg, and they got a pair of scissors, cut the restraints off and ran off down the street. So I'm not sure if that really helped. But that was probably our failing by not reassessing the patient and continuing sedation as appropriate. But yeah, the default position should be restraints off. If you can't take the restraints off, you might need more chemical sedation if appropriate. Take-home points that I sort of gathered from this article and from all the discussion that we've had around it. Um, I think probably the most important thing is our ability to communicate with these patients that have the propensity to escalate and become violent. It's really important to be empathetic towards these patients, to understand where they're coming from or try to understand where they're coming from and communicate with them in a really transparent way in order to avoid a potential escalation of the situation. I think... Another point to take home is that we need to identify these situations early and really optimize our management of these patients in that little gray area that I touched on. Another sort of point that I will take home from this is that we, it seems that we just have a lack of education in these kinds of areas. Like we all talked about the fact that we have the trauma team training, we have code blue training, but or cardiac arrest simulation training, but we really don't have a lot of code black training. And I think that that is probably something that as Margaret is going to talk about, is a really big area of opportunity for us to improve our care for these patients. Thank you very much. For the interlude this month, we've got clinical nurse consultant Margaret Murphy, who will be speaking a little bit with us about policy development and the new implementation of the Code Black at Westmead Emergency Department. So thank you, Margaret. Thanks, Caroline. I would just like to provide just a basic background around the, the project called Code Black. Near-death incidents for both staff and patients identified that the care of patients or people displaying behaviours of concern were a priority for the ED. 
there's newspaper articles, there was actual case incidents for both staff and patients that we needed to not ignore and address. The other issue is that New South Wales health data have recognised that we are an outlier when it comes to the number of restraints that we use and the amount of time we keep patients in restraints. There was clearly questions to be asked around why do you do this? And equally, there was, I suppose, a bit of a focus on this needs to be addressed by the Ministry of Health and by the institution. I know you have discussed the paper around some of the research we did with staff around how they feel about managing code black incidents. And out of kind of that research and some focus groups, there was probably three main themes. Number one is that staff said there was decreased guidance on how to recognize and de-escalate aggression. And not only guidance, I suppose, degrees training as well. There wasn't a lot of formal training on how to do this. There was a lot of modeling, which is great, but but equally there's the importance of training that came out in, in a lot of the groups. There's a lot of a lack of clear roles and responsibilities around how we do manage aggression. We've all seen the cast of thousands that descend upon an aggressive incident. Is this the way to do it? And is it the safest way to do it? Do clinicians know their role? Do security officers know their role? And the answer to all of that was no. There there was no clear guideline on how this should pan out. And clinicians kind of had to use their own initiative and the context of the situation manage it. And we're talking about code blacks. We're talking about takedowns, critical incidents that needed to be managed, both from a patient's perspective as well as from the staff's perspective. That was kind of the very final important piece, that there's a lack of coordinated, consistent organizational response in ED to a takedown. They were clear problems. As a CNC, I'm an agent of change. So these problems were coming up. I brought them up to at an executive level with the ED. And at the same time, obviously, there was a lot of heat on the organization to address these issues because both from a legality point of view, both from a work health and safety point of view, and also a patient advocacy point of view, we obviously weren't doing the best for everyone. That's when the Code Black project was set up. Those of you who have done project management, you know, there's two sides to doing a project or implementing change is probably a better way to do it. You have the details of the project and then you have to implement it. If we talk about the details of the project first, we basically had to define the change. Well, like what did we want to change? Having decided what we wanted to change, or not even decided, having to decide the steps to look at what we needed to change, we had to really collect and analyze the as is. What is the current situation? What is the data telling us as dirty as it is? What are the processes that we see in front of us telling us? What are the incidents telling us? What are staff telling us? And out of that came uh, the need to put together this kind of stakeholder group or expert group to scope out what the priorities were. These were ED clinicians. There were mental health clinicians, toxicology clinicians. Then all of this had to be supported by architecture from the IT, looking at pharmacy, security, looking at people who are responsible for training, both in the ED and across the organization. Researchers were involved and obviously the executive were involved. That's kind of building agent capacity to think about how are we going to address this this change. 
The next thing was to process map and identify issues with that stakeholder group. That was done. It was done through discussion. It was done through the evaluation of existing guidelines. It was done through looking at the literature, uh, sourcing academic uh, literature, legislation, government documents, and grey literature. And then solutions were identified by that group and uh, prioritised. Six main ones were, first of all, how do we do early recognition and de-escalation of critical incidents or potential aggressive incidents? How do we train people to do de-escalation? The next thing was sedation and ongoing care of aggressive patients. The third thing was physical and mechanical restraint use. Were we compliant with the legislation? Uh, did we have a process? The fourth was the redesign of the Code Black team. Number five was staff support and debriefing. And last but not least, number six was recognition that geographically we had issues within the ED on where and how we managed aggression. All led into the implementation strategy. I suspect that's where we're at now. We were able to secure a, a nurse educator. I wanted a project officer because I think it's not just education. And I think that's one big issue we have with you know, change management. Education is not the answer here. You know, IT initiatives are not the answer. They're some of the answers, but they're not all of the answers. So we're embarking upon implementing strategies based on those six kind of broad groups that I've mentioned. And we've also been able to gear the CE towards looking at a PANDA model, which is, you know, a model for admitting patients with mental health, aggression, toxicology issues, very similar to what is set up and running really well at St. Vincent's. So I'll kind of leave it at that there and open it to discussion and analysis of where we're up to now and where we need to go as we embark upon implementing the outcomes of this kind of code black expert or stakeholder group. Thank you so much, Margaret. Um, I feel like that was a really good kind of background understanding for us in terms of kind of seeing how we go from identifying a problem to having an initiative implemented in the department. Definitely a lot to think about. How have you found the implementation so far? Have we seen any kind of change in outcomes or anything, or is it too early to really say any of that at the moment? With project management, you always have to kind of choose your right time. And we couldn't have chosen a worse time, <laughs> as you can all appreciate. So I would say implementation is stalled. I think the implementation needs a little bit more tweaking. When you think about implementation, you have to use a framework. The one I'm used to using is the theoretical domains framework, where you map the issues to uh, appropriate solutions or um, initiatives to implement those solutions. So an example would be education. You know, we can educate all we like, but if the culture is not right, and if we say if we don't want to be debriefed after an incident, there'll be no uptake of that initiative. Yes, we can identify behaviors of concern, but if you have medical staff don't want to change, maybe say how you administer medication to manage that, then it won't happen. If nurses don't take up the behavior of concern chart and escalate and work with it in its active form in that if I get a score, I need to be getting an action or I need to be escalating that. It's like if I get a GCS of seven, I need to go to a doctor very quickly and uh, escalate that and get some action. 
there's a lot more to this. So I would say the implementation is not going well at all. I think it's at zero at the moment. I do think we are the right time in relation to our awareness of why we need to have this change and why we need to have a good strategy for managing aggression. But COVID has definitely a hugely impacted on this. Staff are tired. It's the worst possible time to actually implement something. We are going to evaluate where we're going with just the box chart at the moment. Evaluation is a good component of project management because it helps you to see where you are. It defines the as-is around, like, we have implemented. What are we up to now? How is it working? How is it not? So, yeah, we have a lot more work to do. We definitely, I think, have made a start. I must say I've heard people using the box score and things in the department. And I think, you know, it's definitely got a way of describing how a patient is without having to, you know, like it's a good way to get a clinician's kind of attention and bring some attention to the patient, hopefully earlier rather than later. Yeah, it's a little bit like, you know, the deteriorating patients and between the flags. It gives yeah. you a common language to, to help to articulate your concerns. Yeah. A lot of the nurses you'll, you'll hear, you know, some nurses will say, oh, that came out of the blue, that aggressive incident. But actually others will say, no, no, it has been happening for the last two hours. So it's to address those main issues. It is a new initiative. It's not used, the box chart is not used widely in emergency departments. The only one we know of is Foxray in Victoria, who reached out to us after that incident we had to say to help them to, uh, to address some of their issues. I'll point out, and I'll be honest, it's not the only thing we need. This is a very complex problem, as we've mm-hmm. described. The initiatives that are born out to address it will need to be very complex and very real to address the outcome we're looking for. The process that you've laid out, it sounds very much to me to be along change management, critical incident management terms, i.e. process mapping, trying to understand the steps that are involved in, you know, that lead up to these critical violent incidents and the current sort of processes that are at play. It seems to me that that has been where these interventions have stemmed from. Is there much evidence around these interventions and do we know much about what works in this domain and what doesn't? It's like everything, there's bits of evidence uh, around to support some of the initiatives and there isn't around others. It's certainly from management of any type of situation, it's best to be proactive rather than reactive. So if we take the management of a code black team and the assembly of the code black team, that's very much designed on how we do our trauma team. So prepare and planning is very much part of your trauma scenario. And the same should be for your your code black incidents. And that is, you know, understanding who's in your team, what their role will be, and when you are going to go into action, and who is leading that and who is the actual doers of the takedown and how is it going to be done safely? And what medications are we going to use? And how much are we going to use? It's like intubation, like three or four, maybe five years ago, intubation was a really crash, a reactive situation, whereas now it's very, very organized. It's very streamlined. It's very similar to that approach. That is definitely what we're trying to achieve, the assembly of that Code Black team. Martyr Hospital in Newcastle, they're probably one of the leaders in this. The discussion around how to assemble a team and who should be in the team has been with that group. You know, they proactively prepare their beds so that you don't have people trying to get restraints on when they actually should be on and need to be on the patient, not on the bed. They should be ready, ready to go. It's about bringing 
it's that real proactive approach to managing what is quite a critical situation. So that is one of the initiatives. As regards the restraint, that's legislation. We haven't been complying with it. We don't review. We haven't been reviewing the patients within that one hour. That's a Ministry of Health requirement. Uh, We haven't been documenting. Again, that's a requirement. There's quite a few gaps in how we currently manage aggression. Some are evidence-based. The approaches, some are just actually addressing what is our legal requirement or best practice, equally best practice requirement. I was just going to say it'd be nice to work in a hospital where we've got bed availability. I know. (laughs) It's nice that they can prepare the bed with restraints. We can't even get a bed or even an appropriate clinical space for half our patients, which I think is probably going to make their aggression, well, worse. Thanks, Margaret, for your perspective on the Code Black and the current implementation. I understand it sounds like, you know, with COVID and everything, it's still in its early phases and obviously has a long way to go. For those working in the emergency department at the moment at Westmead who are kind of been a part of this implementation of the Code Black and perhaps who saw the way things were run previously, um, what are your views on the Code Black protocol that we've introduced and What do you think some of the difficulties and benefits of the project are? First of all, do I think it's the right move to formalise the process and address escalating events of violence in ED? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think it's a huge problem. I don't think we're dealing well with it. And I think it's great that we're trying to take steps to bring attention to it and give clinicians the skills and resources in order to help them clinically. I think that's great. However, I think one of the problems with The Code Black project is, in my opinion, doesn't really bring any extra resources to the table. You're still dependent upon the same resources in ED. You're still dependent upon an increasingly overstretched clinical workforce to enact management of these patients. And you don't get any extra staff. There's not really any extra bed availability. Yeah, you might get an increasing awareness that there are problems brewing in the ED, by the block chart, but it's not as sensitive as it could be. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really give you any extra help. It's probably useful in that the guidelines for medication administration are suggested. I think that's pretty effective if you're a junior clinician. There's not going to be as many attempts to sedate someone who's tearing a wall down with two milligrams of diazepam, which is, you know, a bit like pissing in the ocean. But Even those guidelines, I wonder if some of them are not carrying an inherent risk. I mean, for me, one of the roles of a clinician is to assess, you know, why is this patient behaviourally disturbed? And for instance, if it comes down to, I actually think they're under the influence of some medication, some drugs, say, look, the classic one is they've actually had a whole heap of antihistamines and they're a bit anticholinergic. Giving them droperidol is probably the worst thing you could do. So... I think you need to look at the guidelines and look at the clinical situation. And I think if you're a senior clinician, you're probably going to realize, oh, maybe this isn't the way to go with this patient. But if you're a junior clinician, you might be kind of set up to fail because the recommendations on the Code Black power order might lead to some negative patient outcomes that you probably don't want to do. So I guess it's good that there's some guidelines, but I think 
you know, for people listening to the podcast and those in the room, I think we've probably got enough astuteness to say, maybe I should think about what I'm charting rather than just clicking three times. That's one of my criticisms. Thanks, Lex. I think you raised some very, very valid points there. I've definitely been in the scenario myself where we've had to try and rapidly de-escalate a patient and I ended up giving her droperidol only to find out later that she suffered from long QT with a AICD in situ, rapidly raced her through to resus and she ended up being okay. But I remember reflecting back on that situation and thinking that perhaps we do have somewhat of a very generalized approach to these patients who all have their own nuances like every other patient we see. So I think that's a really, really good point and something that we should all be aware of when trying to work with the Code Black initiative. I do think perhaps in terms of raising awareness, like you said, for you know trying to identify early signs of agitation and behavioral disturbance, possibly its utility lies there. And in giving some more junior clinicians with less experience some sort of framework to work with. So I think perhaps its utility is there. I guess, like Margaret said, we're only in the early stages of implementation. So I guess these thoughts can probably all be collaborated into fine-tuning its implementation. Giving nurses permission to come to a senior clinician and say the box score is, I don't know, eight, nine, whatever, some large number. I think that's useful because it brings that to the attention of the senior clinician. So it's, it's got a great utility for that. But then what do you do with it? It's a good tool to bring awareness to maybe patients having you know increased agitation or behavioural concerns. But at the end of the day, is it really providing any extra resources? I mean, it's making the same clinical staff spend time to fill out another clinical form, which takes away from the patients. I think the reality is if you look at why aggression escalates, I mean, it's a situational thing. So the environment, the wait time and the amount of patients that we're getting, like just from a psychiatric perspective, in 2016, we had 1,171 mental health assessments in the year. And in 2020, we had 2,795. We literally doubled. And this is pre-pandemic. Have the resources doubled? No, it's the same amount of staff that are working on the floor. You can put as many tools as you like in. You could have another 10 box charts if you want, but the reality is that there's too many patients, not enough staff and not enough resources. And until we can address sort of, you know, nurse to patient ratios and staff ratios in general and the environment, I wonder what else this is really adding apart from just being a tool that helps look at risk. It might have its utility for relatively inexperienced staff in the middle of the night, but you could have the most senior clinicians on the floor and the same thing's going to happen. It's not going to change too much. And I guess that concerns me a great deal. And yeah, it's a tool that might help in certain circumstances, but the fundamental underlying causes of aggression, it's not changing the patient's personality or clinical situation. It's not changing the environment and it's not changing the availability of communication to tell the patient what's going on. An extra chart is probably going to take away from that. If we had twice the number of mental health CNCs to match the admission or the presentation rate, we'd probably be able to do something with it. But I think what Adam is saying is when you're escalating to the mental health CNC, who already knows about the patient and is trying to deal with the other crisis that's actually bigger, what's this actually helping? It'd be fair to say this is certainly not going to provide the solution to the problem. That's definitely very true. It's a very complex issue. And I think it's very clear, even just Adamina, from the numbers you've stated, that we're severely under-resourced in managing this issue. 
I hear what Lex Natamina is saying that at the moment, it's clearly got a use in acknowledging a problem that we all know exists and maybe quantifying it to an extent, but it's not actually adding to our arsenal other than the thing that we're actually trying to avoid, which is giving sedatives to patients who ideally, when if they were managed in the best possible way, most of them wouldn't need it. I mean, when we talk about environmental factors, we talk about low stress, low stimulation environments, and where do we put them? In the waiting room or alternatively next to the busiest part of the ED with lots of people going in and out and ambulances coming in and out, lots of conversations, lots of screaming, lots of carrying on. It's the worst possible place. So I'm a huge fan of behavioral units, environments that are designed for those patients. I mean, if we can't even have a safe assessment room in a safe assessment area that's, you know, maybe got a nice mural or a nice view of the outside or you know, whale music or whatever it is. I'm sure there's some evidence on what works and what doesn't. But if we can't even do that, why are we having this conversation? Like, can we get that right first? When we talk about systemic problems, it's not just about the ED or a facility. I think part of it is the disjointed nature of mental health care in the community that you have a lot of government funding for one-off programs that last a year. They have a recruitment of patients. It makes a bit of a difference. And then that just dries up. And you've got a lot of private providers that get that qualify this for this funding, but they're not linked in with the rest of the health service. And the point of contact, the point of referral is the ED. And that's got to change. That can't be the best way to do these things. Like you can't tell me that someone with a private psychiatrist that's been seeing him for five or six years, their way of referral is to go and wait 18 hours in the ED to get seen by another uh, mental health clinician to then organise an admission to Cumberland Hospital. It's, it seems like the most inefficient way of doing things possible. Why? How did this happen? ASIM recognised this in 2018 when they talked about the Nowhere Else to Go report, which looked at this, and this, was, this is now 2018, so what's that, four years ago. They basically had a summary of recommendations that looked at all of these things not a lot's changed, but ASIM's done a lot to advocate for clinicians, which has been pretty damn good. That report is really worthwhile reading. When the peak medical body for emergency professionals in Australia and New Zealand is saying things as strongly worded as they are in, in that report, it really speaks to the fact that there's only so much that emergency clinicians can do on their own. And similarly, there's going to be only so much that psychiatry clinicians can do on their own. There needs to be a higher level recognition, even than those high levels. Clearly, we haven't achieved that in the last four years because that report came out and it's fairly blunt, to be honest, just like the ASIM has been fairly excellent putting out fairly blunt messages on access block and overcrowding, but we're yet to achieve a policy change. In terms of something that can be influenced at a local level, I was interested recently to look at some of the evidence around sensory interventions in management of acute agitation and acute behavioral disturbance. And I wonder if there would be a role of this in terms of perhaps integrating with a book chart or even otherwise um, as a proactive way of behavioral management in the ED. So there's evidence that using combined interventions and, you know, each, a number of individual uh, interventions have evidence can reduce anxiety and agitation in patients and reduce the risk of acute behavioral disturbance episodes when they're proactively provided to patients who are identified to need them. There's a whole variety of things that you can do. They range from environmental factors, things like putting nice pictures on the wall, putting pot plants in the waiting room, to giving patients music to listen to, giving them books to read. There's things called fiddles. So essentially, various toys and gadgets and things that essentially you can just hold to distract yourself. By giving people these sensory modulators, 
that they can use to distract themselves and self-manage their anxiety. You're actually kind of empowering people to react to their own distress. But not only that, it kind of also changes the direction of the way that people approach these patients. Adam Aino was talking about trauma-informed care and, and the way that perceptions frame the way that clinicians interact with patients. I think that if we were identifying people who appeared anxious proactively and offering them tools like this, it would perhaps create a bit of cognitive reframing for patients who are distressed, where instead of reacting to them as a threat, we're providing that initial compassionate reaction. Maybe a box score could be used in that regard. You know, a box score of two means you get a coloring book. And I will shout out to a couple of our clinicians at Westmead, Andrew Coggins and Natesh, one of our SRMOs who did an excellent research paper looking at the benefits of coloring for reducing anxiety in the emergency department. What do you guys think about implementing that in Westmead ED? Multisensory stimulation is something we've used in psych for a very long time already. One thing that we've noticed is obviously the pandemic has changed the way we hand these things out. So we used to have these sensory boxes and, you know, patients could take things and we'd clean them and put them back in, but we can't do that now. What we did notice last year was obviously we started to see COVID patients that were quite agitated on the wards. And so we started implementing sensory things, fiddle toys and squishy toys and different scent things, puzzles, all sorts of things. But And it worked quite well. But that only worked because it was the staff that were paying to put these items in the boxes. The issue, again, comes down to funding. But there's so much research to suggest that, you know, sensory items really help alleviate some distress for patients. And I think in the long run, a $2 item is if it's going to help the patient and make them have a better experience and you have a better shift, then most people would want to do it. Finding a way to access these items, I think, is a really good idea. And it's something that anybody can use. Like, you don't need to order it. You don't need to have a doctor chartered as PRN. If you're a nurse, you can use your own clinical initiative to go and pick something out of the box and try to de-escalate the patient yourself. So I think that is helpful. But I think practically what we do need to offer to staff is de-escalation techniques. Like we talk about de-escalation, but what do we use and what training do these people get? There's all different sorts of, of training available, but how we do it to staff and what's practical in the ED is completely different talk. But you can use things like validation therapy. So that would work really well for patients that have sort of delusions or paranoia or even your dementia or Alzheimer's patients. So it's more about validating that that's their reality and, and not arguing with them. You could use time-based therapies as well, which is when you, you come back and you do one minute with the patient every 30 minutes and just sit there. You don't do any clinical tasks. You just sit there and listen to them. And it helps you to build rapport as well. And I think from my perspective as the psych nurse that works in ED, the reason why I can build rapport with patients that have, I guess, chronic issues or the ones that frequently present is mainly because I've taken the time to listen to them. But that's my job. And I understand that ED clinicians probably don't have that much time to sit with them, but you'd be surprised how much work you can do in one minute with a patient. So I think it's just giving staff practical skills. So yes, I think sensory items are a really good thing. And it's definitely something to look into for all ED departments and all wards. Aside from formal training, like even people that haven't had training, the, the best nurses that de-escalate are the ones that are quite empathetic. The best advice that I can give people without actually providing training is if you're going to de-escalate a patient, use a really humanistic approach, but also think about how a caregiver 
that you are with personally, like it could be your mother or your partner or a sibling, like how would they respond to you if you were feeling upset? And if you can use those same techniques with clear boundaries, that helps. So often with patients, I, I don't raise my voice and I don't promise anything I can't deliver. So you kind of have to be really firm, but understanding at the same time. So I often think when I'm de-escalating a patient, what would my mum say to me? <laughs> and how would she try to make me feel better? And I think if you just tell staff that it sort of helps them to be able to de-escalate someone because they've had an experience themselves and they can relate to it more. But yeah, I agree. People absolutely need more, more training. Thank you everyone for that discussion. This is clearly a very complex and very important issue to emergency healthcare providers and our patients. To our listeners, thank you again for sticking with us to the end of another monthly series. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. You can email us at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com to share any of your insights or anecdotes into the management of workplace violence in ED. Please stay tuned for another monthly series, which will be cardiology next month. Everyone stay safe and we will be back in your ears soon. Dream. I want you to dream